So I enjoy getting back to a Sunday that has kind of a, a normal rhythm to it, get into this new series that go into Colossians. Um, if you haven't opened your Bibles up, get to Colossians chapter 1, and that's where we're going to be today. I strongly encourage you to take a time this week and read all of Colossians. That may sound like a lot because it's the Bible. It's four chapters, and uh, in my Bible, it was like three pages of text. So it's not going to take super long, and it's helpful to kind of be able to hear the entire story and, and not just be seeing one part of it like we may do in some of these messages, and so get a chance to hear the whole story. Uh, our plan right now is to be in this series between now and Easter, which is, um, I think, April 9th. And so we're going to get a chance to spend a three months going verse by verse through this teaching that is so deep and present to who we are. And so we have enjoyed getting back to some normalcy, um, but at the same time, we're looking at the calendar, and I want you to know we've got some really special things that are planned for the new year as a church. I'm excited for this youth retreat happening this weekend. Uh, in February, we have a movie night that we're doing combined with Grace Preschool, and we're going to have food trucks, and we're going to have a movie night. Um, I'm excited next month as we kind of celebrate what God's doing um, through this church to have our church planning coach that's been with us since the beginning of the church. Um, even he, if you don't know the story, Scott was the guy that was with me in Orlando as I was praying with uh, denominational leaders about the idea of doing this church. And uh, he was the one that at midnight, I'm in a room with like 25 other pastors. And I say, hey guys, I want to go get another tattoo. Will anybody go with me? And all of a sudden it's midnight and all these, you know, pastors look at me and just stare at me. And Scott goes, I'll go. And so we were at a tattoo parlor at like 2 a.m. in Orlando with a bunch of teenagers and two pastors uh, there. And it was just a fun part of the story. And he's been with us ever since then, coaching me, praying for our church. And so he's going to be with us next month to celebrate. Uh, we've been asked again to do the sound for baseball opening day. And so we're going to get a great chance to love in our community and be a part of what God's doing there. The Sunday after, the day after baseball opening day, we're going to do another family fun day uh, to really do kind of a ribbon cutting on the celebration of what God's doing. We're going to unveil the new sign, um, which is actually very affordable for us to just remake it. And so a bunch of things that we're looking forward to. We're doing a spring break kickoff party at Paradise Beach. We've got a professional Christian reggae artist, Xander, who's going to be here. And uh, we're bringing in some other bands from the area and food trucks at Paradise Beach. A month after that, we're doing our Good Friday service again at Paradise Beach. Again, that's who we are as a church, is even though it's the first year that we have a building that we could do Good Friday in because we haven't been able to up until now, we're going to choose to go out into the community, and a lot of churches do church on the beach, which we will on Easter morning. We're going to do Good Friday at sunset on the beach and have it in a place that maybe people would be willing to come to that aren't willing to come into a church. And so just all kinds of things that we're praying for, um, for God to continue to move. And so we go into this message. Let me just pray one more time and ask God's presence to be here. God, we just think that, uh, I just think of the scripture that says that you are in every occasion. And so, Jesus, I just pray that as we make these plans for the upcoming year, Lord, that we never plan you out. 
Um, we never think so much uh, strategy um, that we don't leave room for the Holy Spirit. And so, God, I pray that to be true in this message. That, God, I'm thankful that you've given me the opportunity this week to plan and prep and pray through this message. Um, I'm thankful for just the wealth of information we have today as we go to teach, um, that we can pull from so many resources to put together um, an in-depth message. Uh, but, God, I pray that also that the words I say are not as important as how you put them on people's hearts. That, God, I pray that there are some sentences that I say that five different people hear differently because that's what you want them to hear. So, God, we're thankful for what you've done. We're thankful for what you're doing. And, God, we just continue to invite you in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go into Colossians, I kind of want to do some back work. So the first half of this is probably going to be a little bit more teaching-oriented than preaching-oriented because I want to kind of open up why we're in this book. What does this book mean? And one of the things I, I enjoy doing is frequently I'll talk about the different revivals that we've seen, you know, even in our American history. And as we look at the different revivals, we can learn a lot from them. And we're going to see one specific thing um, that we're going to use to drive us into this series called Always Only Jesus. As you look at the first great awakening that took place like in the 1730s, it was mostly in England, but it was coming over to the colonies. And so you've got Jonathan Edwards and John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and these great leaders that kind of began the, the Methodist church and so many other movements. And the whole focus of that was convicting people that they were sinners in need of a savior and that Jesus Christ was the only one that could be your savior. That we are sinners and we were convicted of our sin and that it's always only Jesus. That only Jesus can be the one to forgive us of those sins. The second great awakening was about 90 years later, so about the 1820s. This time mostly in America and some of it went back into England and the other countries around there. Charles Finney was a big mover in that awakening, and it was actually less focused on getting people into the church and more focused on getting Jesus back into the public spaces. So the YMCA was formed, the Salvation Army. It was also very much involved, the church, with the underground uh, movement of the Underground Railroad and women's rights and some of those great things that were happening at that time. And we see the Baptist, Methodists really have their movements uh, continue to grow during that time. Then you've got the third great awakening, which took place in Chicago at D.L. Moody. And this is really where we begin to see this mass evangelism, where he would speak to crowds with 100,000 people there. And he would share the gospel, and he would share essentially a message that all you need is, is Jesus. That Jesus is what you need um, to be able to have uh, Jesus in your life and his blessings in your life. Another revival that's maybe not as well known but very important to look at is the Azusa Street Revival in the 1906 is where that began um, in the L.A. area where you've got William Seymour, uh, a former American, he's the son of an American slave, and he's walking with a friend to a prayer conference and he said, hey, would you pray for me before we get there? He goes, sure, and he lays hands and prays for him, and they see the Holy Spirit move in a powerful way, and he begins to speak in tongues, and through that movement, they begin to see just miraculous signs, and all the things of the early church began to happen in that movement that began the, the Pentecostal movement, the charismatic movement of seeing the Holy Spirit be alive as we've seen in Scripture. 
In the 20th century, you really look back and you see, again, these mass evangelists with Billy Sunday and uh, Billy Graham and these evangelists that were just doing great things. And I I think we've got pictures of some of these people um, in the early slides there. And uh, we've got Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. Uh, I actually would include this one too, um, Promise Keepers. Uh, Has anybody been to a Promise Keepers conference? I see anybody was at Promise Keepers in Washington, D.C. Was anybody there? So I was there with my dad, and, and uh, Brad, I actually didn't know that you were there. And uh, uh, so, you know, I was one of those people. I think we were three screens back is where my dad and I were, that we were somewhere around there. And you see these mass movements of men coming together uh, to pray for our nation and to stand for what God stands for. One of the most interesting revivals to look at that I've kind of skipped over there is the Jesus movement. Um, Did anybody ever go to any of the gatherings for the Jesus people or the Jesus movement? So you were at some of those, and uh, anybody else that was a part of that? I actually would love to hear more about it. Um, The Jesus People USA still have a presence in Chicago, and if you don't know, they're one of our sister churches. So Jesus People USA is actually part of the covenant, and so they're a part of some of the ministries that we're doing. It started in the 1960s in California. It went from coast to coast, though. It was all over the entire country. It was a lot of young people, and you were seeing thousands upon thousands of people coming to a relationship with Jesus. They used the greeting of Maranatha. The the Lord is coming, and they would just share God's love with people, and they shared God's grace with people, and it truly was a revival moment. And there's so many documentaries, there's so many books, there's been a lot of dissertations for PhDs written to try and identify why did the Jesus movement take place? Was it the leaders like Chuck Smith or Arthur Blissett? Was it the music that they were tired of hymns and choirs and you had uh, Larry Norman and Love Song and Phil Kage? You had these new music coming out, these new expressions of worship, you know, or was it just the West Coast atmosphere? You know, the the hippie movement. Uh, People always love to advertise the West Coast atmosphere. If you ever buy a Hollister shirt that says, uh, you know, California on it, if you don't know, it was designed um, in Columbus, Ohio, and New Albany to be specific. Um, They have no office in California that does any designing. It's it's Ohio, but who wants to buy something that says New Albany, Ohio? So they, they say California. They're like, well, maybe that was the Jesus movement, is that people wanted just to have this West Coast vibe. But as you look at what the Jesus movement really was focused at, and even today where they continue to try and drive people, that there is no doubt the real reason for the Jesus movement was one thing only. Greg, can you tell us what it was? What was the main thing of the Jesus movement? The main focus of the Jesus movement. Jesus and the Holy Spirit, exactly. It was always only Jesus. They try to look at all these other contributing factors. And it was Jesus and letting his Holy Spirit and his love and his truth come into a youth that were hurting from from war and and distrust um, and and Watergate and all these political things that we can kind of relate to today. And so that was the focus of the movement. But here's what's so interesting was that the church leaders kind of didn't like this. And there was one known pastor in Orange County that was in the, quoted in the paper as saying, well, you know, in a kind of a snidely remark, he said, those Jesus people, all they have is Jesus. 
And that's what we're focused on for the next few months is all we need is Jesus. Now, yes, we get the truth of Jesus, not the other things that are said about Jesus, but the truth of Jesus from the word of God. And so we see that it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That is who Jesus is. We won't separate the word from Jesus because Jesus is the word. We're not going to separate Jesus from the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus, and Jesus is God. And so we're going to look at that, but our focus as we go through between now and Easter is going to just continue to rest on this idea of Jesus. And in my men's group, um, uh, Jordan shared this with us. It has a math term, which I still have to watch the video to completely understand, but that Jesus is necessary and sufficient. So that's the title of today's message, necessary and sufficient, that Jesus is necessary, that we all need Jesus. That every human being who has ever been born, who will ever be born here on earth, they all need Jesus. That we're all sinners in need of a Savior. But the good news is, all you need is Jesus. That he is sufficient for all that we, de- all that we need. And as you look at the book of Colossians, what Paul is teaching against is something that I think is becoming even more present today in our culture in recent years. That you need Jesus but you also need to have a little bit of ceremony. You need Jesus, but you've got to do it in the right rituals. You you need Jesus, but you also need to have a certain structure. You need Jesus, but a little bit more of this or that. That you need Jesus, but you also got to make sure that you're a good person, and we'll get into that. not saying that we won't be, but as Anthony said, it's a uh, secondary factor of our relationship with Jesus. You need Jesus, but also you have to agree with our social or political views in order to really be a good Christian. You need Jesus, but you need to be aligned to this ideology. And actually, one of the things I love about our church is that we have been a place that have people with different ideologies and different political views that are sitting side by side each other right now in these pews because we understand that it's not a political party. It's not a certain social view. It's Jesus that everybody needs. So even as we disagree on things, and even if we've got one team that's cheering Go Bulldogs, which we can do tomorrow with our friends, that... Even if we disagree on teams that we cheer for, we all know that we're on the same team, and that is the team of Jesus. And that is why we have been welcomed into a building by a Lutheran church, and that is why when we buy the building, we're going to continue to do a ministry alongside them, is because even though we have different titles on our names, we all are on the same team, and we're always focused on Jesus. And so we're not discrediting the fact that they have an altar, they have more ritual to what they do, but what we're saying is that that's how they choose to worship, just like we choose to have modern music instruments, but all we need is Jesus, and that puts us on the same team, that puts us together. If you really want to dig into this, I highly recommend, it's free on YouTube, The American Gospel is a well-done documentary that really sticks into this idea of all we need is Jesus. So as we come into church planting, it's interesting some of the things that, you know, people want to put on you. It's like, you know, how can you be a church without having a building, which was our, where we were in the beginning? And for those of you that were with us when we were a homeless church, and we could say that we're a church without walls because we literally were outside of a school, and it was just a really amazing place that you could connect to the early church. You know, I've had people ask me, you know, 
uh, well, do you wear a robe on Sunday? Because like, I can tell if I say no, they're like, well, you're not a real pastor, you know? And yes, uh, not as much since my hair has gotten grayer, but for a little while there, I was asked frequently, so is your dad the lead pastor of the church? And uh, eventually I was like, that's a compliment because I'm turned 40 and I'll take that any day. But not as much anymore. It's not, that's not happening as much. Um, you know, people will ask you, well, what denomination are you a part of to try and qualify you as a real church? And then some things too. Uh, recently, I've been asked by another pastor of, well, do you speak in tongues? Got a little quieter on that one. You know, what version of the Bible do you read from? You know, or are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Are you full gospel? You know, and they ask these questions to qualify if we're a real Christian or not. And we're going to see that all of these issues really get addressed in Colossians. And so if you say, why are we in Colossians at this time for our church? And it's because Colossians will give us answer to so much of what's happening. All right, if you're taking notes, here's a few things to write down. One is that we can see that we do live just like the Colossians um, in an age of reason. An age where science is revered by people. Check out this fact. 90% of all scientists who have ever lived in the history of mankind are alive right now. We've got more information in science than has ever existed. And the amount of science, the amount of technology, the amount of wisdom that is being created every single day is just exponential from what we've seen at any other time in history. But as we've seen in the pandemic, I think really kind of ramped this up, is that science has been elevated to almost a savior status, almost to a religious status. So it's like follow the science, but make sure it's the science that, that we agree with. And it's got to be in a certain thought and a certain process. You know, but during this whole time, it's like people try to stand against each other on this idea of science. So what does the Bible have to say about that? What does Colossians, what does Paul have to say about this? Well, Colossians tells this in chapter 1, verse 16. And this is kind of the reference I was trying to say to the, uh, the, the, the cards that were brought this morning with the birds. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And so that's where the Bible begins to speak into this subject we'll dig into more later. So it's the age of reason, but also we live in an age of division. And we see that was true for Colossians as well. In the midst of this time, you know, people were saying that Jesus is good, but the whole teaching of the town there was that Jesus is good, but also let's bring in these pagan rituals. You know, Jesus is good, but let's also make sure we keep on having our celebration every new moon. You know, Jesus is good, but it's also continued some of the legalistic Judaism of the law because we also want to make sure that we're following all those rules. And Paul's going to come in and say in chapter 2, verse 10, um, it's certain, I think, in verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him who is Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. I love that. You're always complete when you're in Jesus. It's the only faith that's called for us to be in our Savior. 
You're never called to be in Mohammed. You're never called to be in Confucius. You're never called to be in Buddha. But we're called to be in Christ. And as you read through, especially chapter 2 of Colossians, you're going to see it's like 87 times, and I'm going off of memory, in Scripture it says that. And like 20% of those are going to be in Colossians. It's a focus of this book that we're called to be in Christ. It's always only Jesus. We also live in an age of confusion, and we're going to see that was happening here too. You know, there's this uh, very popular bumper sticker um, that you can see that says coexist. And the message behind this is kind of like, hey, all you religious weirdos, can you stop arguing because we all essentially believe in the same thing, right? And actually, we can see that there is a truth that it says in Colossians that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme. I think the King James says that he's the preeminence over all creation. That there isn't multiple versions of God, but there's one God. His son was Jesus Christ. And he's the only way that we can be connected to God the Father as he sits on the right hand of God the Father. It makes this declaration, it's always only Jesus. There is no other way. It's only through Jesus. We live in an age of deception. You know, it's just, you you can't even get a judge to define uh, who a woman is. We live in this age where people want to question the role of the family. Well, just wait till we get to chapter 3. It's got those texts that, you know, every time I go to a wedding, it's like, so are we going to talk about them? Are we going to talk about the wives submit to your husband? Are we going to talk about what that means? And absolutely we are. And that's actually the really fun thing about preaching verse by verse is it doesn't allow me to skip over the difficult passages. But also when I get to those difficult passages, you can know I didn't just pick them out for that Sunday. It's like the text brought us there. And so that's what's going to happen on some of these texts. We're going to be forced to go into every single verse, and it's going to put us in a comfortable text that's uncomfortable. But guess what? There is good news in those verses. There's good news because if we have men that stand up in our households who love their wives as Christ loved the church, then I don't think any wife would have a problem submitting to that kind of leadership as it's biblically defined. And we're going to dig into the beauty of what that means. Um, As we look in this, it says in the age of deception, the next age that we're talking about, the age of deception. Um, In verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. I love that. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something else that I, I hope that we accomplish in the next few months is that if anybody asks you what the gospel is, that you would have the ability to define that biblically and clearly in one sentence and stand in truth in that. Because if you watch the American gospel, they look at all kinds of different social media outlets and TV programs, and they say, well, what's the good news? What's the gospel? And can you guess what 90% of our culture says? Be a good person. And I will tell you the reason why that it's good news It's because the good news is you can't be a good enough person. And so Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that's why it's called the good news. All right, so I want you to know a little bit about the town. I told you it's a little bit of a teaching Sunday as we get into this new text. 
So as you look at the town of Colossae and you see this, I've got a map for you to see. And, uh, and so the right-hand side, you can kind of see it handing out by itself a little bit better. Um, and then this one allows you to see, it's here on the left-hand side. Uh, Laodicea, I wanted you to see, is like right next door. Ephesus, you hear about that in Scripture. Um, Galatia is kind of this whole center reason. And so this is a lot of the work that uh, Paul was involved in, was a lot of this area, which is modern-day Turkey. And so they actually have found the location, but there's been no excavation of this area. And it's one of these areas where people would love to get into it and dig into it. We believe we know the spot, but none of it has really been digged out. We found coins and stuff that references um, the town, but that's kind of the extent of, of that idea. But what we do know is that it was like this mixed bag of rival philosophies, where it sat kind of in the middle of everything, they really had all of the religious views of the East and all the religious views of the West and what was coming up from the South with Judaism and Christianity. It all kind of was in this town. And what they did, they kind of tried to take everything and mix it together and say, okay, we'll take a little bit of this, we'll take a little bit of that, and we'll mix in a little bit of Jesus, and everybody can get along, and we'll just stand with that. But the verse we just read pushes us into the reality that there has to be a truth. So as we begin this study and we go into this idea of truth, uh, maybe you've heard the term heresy, and, and that's really what Paul is doing. He has heard heresy that's being taught to his church, and so he is writing a letter to try and correct that. Heresy, the definition of that, is, is an opinion or belief contrary to the truth. And so he's trying to write into truth, and we get a chance to, to listen in on that. So verse 1, if you're following along, the first thing we're going to look at is the concern for the church. Paul has this deep concern for the church, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, we know what? We know who wrote it. We know that Paul wrote it. We do know that Timothy was with him, but Timothy didn't write this letter. We know where Paul wrote it from. Um, it says that he was a brother in chains. And so we know that this is one of the many times that Paul found himself in jail. In Acts chapter 8, it says that Paul was allowed to have his own rented house and people could come visit him. So we actually will see that like the pastor of this church, he's going to come visit Paul 1,300 miles away. So this is very important to him because he didn't take a train. He didn't take a bus. He didn't fly. He had to travel, most likely by land and some sea, to get there. It was an expensive, hard trip. And so he comes to, you know, share this report on what is happening. What's interesting is there's no record of Paul ever visiting this town. But he heard about it. And we see in verse 3 and 4, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. It says in verse 9, we have heard. It says in chapter 2, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea as well. So he hears about this great conflict and he's writing to address it. And so then the question is asked, well, who started this church? And that would be a fun Bible trivia question. And we see in the text, the person is Ephaphras. 
And so that's the church planter who started this. You may say, well, Kevin, I've never heard of him before because we don't name our kids after him, even though he's done a lot of great work here in the early church. We know that he was a church planter. We can see in the text that he was born and raised in this town, um, that this was, he was a local person, that his name is of Greek origin would actually share that he probably isn't of Jewish descent, but he is a Greek who is living in that town. And we continue to hear more on his report. Because of the hope in verse 5, which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it was also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you learn from who? You learn from Ephaphras, our dear friend and fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Now, if you don't mind, and we just look real quickly at chapter 4, we won't do this every week, but I'm kind of setting the stage. Chapter 4, verse 2, it says, He who is one of you, in other words, he was a Colossian, a bondservant of Christ, you always labor and fervently for you in prayers. So that's kind of in case you're wondering how we make these statements about like who wrote it, where it was written to. I'm kind of trying to let you see how we decipher this information from Scripture to understand where we are coming from in these different books of the Bible. Now, as we continue to dig into this, we can see that Paul, for three years, he actually taught kind of like his seminary, and he had people in there like... Um, uh, well, he had Epiphras in there, and he had um, Philemon in there, and he had all these other people that were sent out to start these churches. So all the map that you saw, all those different churches, Paul wasn't the church planter of all of them, but he actually ran a church planter's workshop, and he sent them out. The reason why I keep on bringing this up is because as I'm preparing the letter that I'm going to write, as before the end of the month we send out, you know, 2022 giving, I've been thinking about, you know, what is it that God wants me to share? And the message that God wanted me to share in that letter that I've been working on is that I want many of you and most of you, if not all of you, to recognize that you are a part of a church plant and you are church planters, that all of you have made the decision, just like these leaders that we connect with in Colossians, to be a part of a church that doesn't have everything completely organized, that doesn't have uh, everything already put in place for the past 50 years, that we've got a church that we are building together. And the fact that you are choosing to be a part of this church is a recognition that you want to be a part of doing the work to build a church together. And so in some ways, I want to say the same words as Paul, as praise God for you, for your willingness to give, your willingness to sacrifice, your willingness to uh, teach in the children's program, your willingness to come and be a part of a church that's building a foundation that can be a part of God's work for, for many, many years to come. And so as we step into this book written to a church planter, to a church plant, that I want you to receive that, that we're a part of this good work that God is doing. So this heresy that I mentioned that's happening um, in the town, it's a, it's a mix of Greek mysticism, uh, Jewish legalism, Greek philosophy, and all these different pieces of work. And what you really hear, have you ever heard the term the Gnostic Gospels? 
Um, I believe they talk about it. What was the, the book that was real popular? With, by, was it Dan Brown? What was that? The Da Vinci Code. They talk a lot about the Gnostic Gospels, like there's this other truth out there that's been held from, you know, mainline Christianity, and, and it's all hidden in the Da Vinci uh, paintings, like the Last Supper. And so where he's pulling some of that fictional idea from is the idea of the Gnosticism that was being taught in areas like Colossae. And if you know the word agnostic, the word agnostic simply means, if you ask someone the question, is there a God, the response is, I don't know. Agnostic means I don't know. And so you ask someone, is there a God? I don't know. There could be. I don't know. But Gnostic actually refers to somebody who believes that they know everything. The Gnostic gospel means that we've got more truth, that we're more enlightened than other people. And so that was being taught here in this town was that we've got it figured out. That if you jump through all of our rituals, and we take a little bit of Jesus, we celebrate the new moon, and we vote for this person, and we believe in that. If you mix all this together, then you can be enlightened, and you can actually be a more spiritual person than other people. That you can have this true wisdom that they claimed. And they all went into this Greek philosophy that if God is good and evil exists in this world, how do we reconcile that from a philosophical perspective? So they decided that if God is good but the world is evil, that means that what happened was that out of God emitted all these beings that were angels and sub-gods. And I know this is a little confusing. That's kind of the point is they make it really confusing. And we're going to go back and say, but all you need is Jesus. So follow me. So God is good, and all these different beings emanated from him. So when it says in the King James Version that Jesus was the preeminence, it's actually a teaching against Gnosticism. And, but our newer translations don't say that. So God is good. You've got all these other beings. And the further they created from God, and then sub-gods, they created things. Angels, they created things. And eventually you got things so far from God, they no longer were a part of God at all. And Jesus was a good angel that came out of God to bring us back in a relationship with God. And they tried to mix all this together to reconcile all of their different teachings. And all of a sudden what they do is they make it unattainable except for a few who claim to be more enlightened than you and they're the ones that are in charge of the temples and the different places. And Paul comes back and says, I hope you're all confused now. All you need is Jesus. All you need is Jesus. Jesus is all that you need. And they also, by the way, believe that the reason why Jesus was able to come back on the third day is because he wasn't even a real human body, that he was a vision that you could see. And if you walked next to Jesus on the beach, his feet wouldn't make footprints because he wasn't really a human being. Well, we're going to read in Colossians where it says clearly that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and that Jesus is all that you need, that in Jesus is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, that in Christ was God in humanly form, that out of the concern he had for the church, he writes this letter, the next thing, the correspondences to the church, what he writes to the church, and really I want you to see the heart that he has into this and the heart that we have going into this series. It says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are in Colossae. 
And, and notice he says saints. The, the Greek word there is hagios. And when he calls them saints, the separated ones, I want you to know that the saints were not people who had died. They were not people who had pictures of them written with gold leaf letterings and halos above their heads. They were not people that had to have so many recorded miracles. The saints were living people. They were alive. And they were dedicating their lives to tell people, all you need is Jesus. They were the ones that were willing to go into the areas that had leprosy. And they would go in just like Jesus. And this is recorded throughout the Roman Empire. And they would touch those that others would not touch because they were not concerned with their bodies on earth because they knew they would be for eternity. They were the ones that went into the Black Plague and went into the cities that everybody else was trying to leave. And they came in and they cared for the sick. They were the saints that lived among us. They were the ones that were willing to go to other countries and care for people. They were the ones that were willing to go take care of the poor, the widows, the elderly. Those were the saints. He was writing to the separated ones that were in their midst. And I just love that idea. Again, in verse 3, it says, Knowing the concern that he has, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Christ, praying always for you. And the last two verses for the day. Verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge. I notice that some preachers they always act like they're mad. And I actually struggle with that. You know, I don't understand what they're so angry about because we've got the good news. We don't have to worry about slamming other political leaders or other people out there if we focus on the truth of Jesus. If we focus on the love of Jesus, Paul tells us, do not quarrel, do not fight, do not speak with slander in your mouth. That God calls us to focus. I believe that as a church, that we should be known what we're for so much more than what we're against. And whenever I see churches and all you know about them is who they hate, that's not a church that we want to be. We want to be a church that they say, well, what do you know about Rock Harbor? Well, they love Jesus a lot. They believe in the word of God and they pray for people. And God's healing people over that. That's what we want to be known for. We want to be known that we're a place that you can come and be accepted and loved and cared for. That's who we want to be. But I would even say I would love us to be known by who we're for and who we're in love with and who we are trying to make popular in all that we do. Be for Jesus. That we want to be for Jesus always in all that we do. That we want to always be about talking about Jesus. Something else I would say is that we should celebrate the saints more than worry about the ain'ts. And here's what I mean by that. We get so frustrated by who ain't in church today. You know, and you've got your people. Why isn't so-and-so in church? Or, you know, I'm just trying to get so-and-so to church. Or I'm praying for so-and-so to go to church. We get so focused on that. And yes, the scriptures will call us to continue to pray for them. But do it with joy in your heart that God can come and soften those hearts. 
And then ask yourself, how many people that are in this room right now are you praying for on a first name basis? How many relationships are we building here? And that's part of our job as a church is to give you opportunities to build those relationships. And as we go into this year and we have some spaces that we can call our own and times that we can open up on a Friday night and, and have coffee in the lobby and have music and have chance for people just to be together. Let's be for praying for each other and loving on each other and not just be focused on who ain't here, but be focusing on those who are sitting side by side, the faithful brethren in Christ. I grew up in a brethren church, and I love that idea that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, who is it that we want to be? Uh, one of the last quotes I'm going to read for the day was, there was a, a teacher, a diagnosis, who was uh, a tutor to the Roman Caesars. They believed three different Caesars were taught by him and that he was the tutor at the end of the Roman Empire, at the, well, at the end of the persecution of Christians. And here's what he was teaching them of what the Christians were in his teaching. Christians are not marked out for the rest of man, are not marked out from the rest of mankind by their country or their speech, their language or their customs. Christians dwell in cities, both Greek and barbarian, each as his own lot is cast, following the customs of the region in clothing and in food and in outward things of life generally. Yet they manifest the wonderful and openly paradoxical character of their own state. They inhabit the land of their birth, but as temporary residents. Thereof they take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disabilities as aliens. Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land a foreign land. They pass their days upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. See, I love that. I would love for people to say, man, they worry more about others than about themselves. They're living with heaven in mind that that is who God is calling us to be. The last thing, if we're taking notes, I'll make sure you get it filled in. The character of the church. It says in most of Paul's letters, as it does in Colossians, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, grace and peace, which happens to be the basis for living in Christ Jesus. It's the necessary and sufficient the grace and peace that is offered to us. And what Paul was doing here, he was taking the Greek greeting of rejoice and changing it only a couple of letters. And I actually was sharing, we have a, a wonderful lady in our church, Carice, um, and she's actually teaching our kids right now. So I was talking to her before the service. And I said, how much do you know about your name? And uh, she goes, well, I know in the Greek it's pronounced charis, and I know that it means grace. Paul would share grace and peace to you. He took the rejoice that they knew and said, it's not something you have to earn. It's grace that God gives you freely. And because of that, you can experience shalom, the peace that the Jewish people kept on trying to work for. They kept on trying to follow the laws. They kept on trying to be good enough people. They kept on trying to wear the right clothes, eat the right food, do the right customs. And when he says to you, grace and peace, he's declaring all you need is Jesus. It's not about being perfect. It's about coming to Jesus Christ, who's the only person we need to ever confess our sins to. He is the high priest. He is sufficient. There needs to be no one else between us and God the Father except for Jesus Christ. 
He is sufficient to forgive us of our sins. And so I share with you that message, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. He's all that you need. That yes, we are sinners in need of a savior. Yes, we are not able to do enough good works to save ourselves. But the good news is that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Paul also teaches us that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is necessary and he is sufficient. It says in Romans 3 that we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. The law simply shows us our inability to ever be right without Jesus. Jesus is all that we need and Jesus is sufficient. Let's pray. God, we're just so thankful that it seems so easy for me to preach these things. But that's only, God, because you have demonstrated your own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That, God, that you have made it so easy for us that all we need is Jesus, but not because it was easy. As our little skit shared last week, it was something that you first saw, something that you planned. Something that Jesus even asked the question to his father, but is there any other way? And God, you declared, son, you know there is no way. That you are the way, the truth, and the life. That no one can come to the father except through you. And that is Jesus Christ. It's always only Jesus. It's always been only Jesus. Even back at the time when he said, let there be light. God knew that it was going to be only Jesus. And so, God, we come here today, Lord, and we just make that declaration as a church. But, God, that doesn't save anyone. God, that we ask that in this time, in this moment, that everybody here who is hearing this word, that they make that promise to you. That it also says in Romans that we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. God, I'm so thankful for this wonderful message that since we have been justified through faith, that through that grace, we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That as you want to hear today and they're going to this new year and they're thinking, you know what? I, I need grace and I need peace in my life. God, I pray that right now they can cry out to you and just say, Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I can't be good enough I'm so thankful the good news is not about being good. I'm thankful the good news is that you died on the cross for our sins. If that's you here this morning, just say that prayer to him right now. Just say, dear Jesus, I confess to you I'm a sinner. And I need you as my savior. So I offer my life completely to you as you've already done to me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.